Hey, good to see you guys. My name's Gretchen, if we haven't met yet. And um, we are working through the book of Daniel. And if you don't have a Bible, we have a box of them in the back. They're free. We'd love for you to take one. And it's not weird at all if you want to get up and grab one of those before we get started. Um, So we have this uh, strange relationship with uncertainty. Because there are some surprises that we love, right? The gender reveal parties, like the baby, you know, that whole thing. Like, we love that. How ridiculous and extreme can we get with a gender reveal? We love to watch, like, an engagement proposal, right? Those surprises are exciting. Um, We get excited about whatever show we're watching. I know there was some discussion about um, people who are watching This Is Us, and we're kind of watching it. Um, you know, a little bit late and catching up, and like, don't spoil the surprise. We like some of those surprises. We also hate the uncertainty of not knowing. Like when your boss says, "Um, I'd like you to come see me in my office first thing tomorrow morning. Or your girlfriend says, I think we need to talk right? (laughs) Not knowing. Um, We worry about so many things, like, will I make the right decision? What major should I choose? Uh, Who should I date? Who should I marry? What should I do with my life? What kind of career should I pursue? I found this quote from Donald Rumsfeld. I was a political scientist, so this is, you know, right up my alley, but Donald Rumsfeld was the U.S. Secretary of Defense, first under um, President Gerald Ford and then under George W. Bush, and so he was quoted famously as saying this. Is there a slide for this? Okay, great. Um, There are known knowns. These are things we know that we know. And there are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things that we don't know we don't know. Okay, if that isn't enough to make you freak out about all the things that we don't know, that uncertainty can be paralyzing for a lot of us. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to make the right decision. I don't know, um, you know, if, if I don't know the right thing to do, then why do anything at all? And sometimes it can stop us in our tracks. We don't want to be wrong. We don't want people to think that we did the wrong thing. We don't want to fail We don't want to waste our time or our money or our energy on something that isn't the right thing. And it creates a fear and an anxiety that seems seems to be crippling an entire generation. I read somebody describe their 20s in this way, and I want to see if you can relate to any of these, okay? I felt like I was drifting. I made bad choices. I lacked confidence. I'd fret over decisions. I wanted to avoid all conflict, avoid conflict at all cost. I wanted to avoid any decision that couldn't be changed. I didn't want to be bound by anything. I sometimes hated being asked about stuff I like. Because I'd have to choose what to say. I don't know, do I like this or not? And I, I think I just can sympathize. This is a hard place to be. Anybody relate to any of those things? Yeah. We get caught up in worry about who will be disappointed by our decisions or how these decisions will impact our relationships or our futures or our happiness. We try to please everyone, and we feel the push and the pull, don't we? 
But there's another way. And it's a way that's defined by integrity. Um, my husband, Todd, if you know him, he loves words. And so he teaches me a lot about words. He's always into crossword puzzles. He's great at Wheel of Fortune. Um, but he loves to talk about, like, the origin of, of words and the root. And so this is a word that he taught me about a long time ago. But integrity comes from the root word integer. You see the, the connection there? Integrity comes from integer. And integer is something that you should have talked about in math class. So um, an integer is a whole number, a number that is not a fraction. But it's also a thing complete in itself. So when we think about the word integrity, integrity is the state of being whole or being undivided. The stress and the anxiety that we feel in regards to decision-making has something to do with us being internally divided. We have divided loyalties. What do I want to do? Uh, do? What do my parents think I should do? What does my culture tell me I should do? We have divided priorities. Who's first? Like, is it God first? Is it me first? Is it other people first? We have divided hearts about who we love. Do I love me most? Do I love others most or God? So when faced with a decision, it becomes this major ordeal because then in every situation, I have to determine in this moment, in this situation, with these people involved right now, what am I going to prioritize? How am I going to make the decision in this moment? It's a constantly moving target. But there's another way to live. And instead of being divided and indecisive and stressed out and overwhelmed, we can live a life of integrity or wholeness. And so it begins with what we saw in Daniel chapter 1 when we started this series, where Daniel and his friends resolved not to eat from the king's table. Remember, we've talked about this several times now. That being resolved is a decision about who we want to be, making that decision about who we want to be. But that decision doesn't do us much good unless it informs the way that we live the way that we act, how we make decisions. So I can resolve on January 1 that I'm going to lose weight, um, but if I keep eating Big Macs and Krispy Kreme donuts, then that resolve doesn't mean much, does it? Integrity is matching what we do with what we say. So integrity or wholeness means that if I resolve to lose weight, if I commit to that and I set my mind to that, I'm going to do things like exercise and eat healthy, um, make good choices about my food. I read an article a few years ago, and I've talked about this before, but it, this article talked about the reason that runners lose weight. And of course, runners lose weight because they run and they burn calories. But the article also determined that part of the reason people lose weight when they take up running is because they begin to think of themselves as runners. And so say you go to a party and there's like a big tray of cookies and then there's a tray of fruit. That a runner, someone who's taken up running might look at that and say, well, runners aren't going to eat cookies. I'm going for the fruit. Because they begin to think that way. They think like a runner. In the same way, when we resolve to follow Jesus and be faithful to him, we should begin making choices based on that identity as God's people. So when we're hanging out with friends and the conversation gets raunchy or unkind or critical, 
um, then maybe we think, hmm, disciples of Jesus don't act like that. I'm going to be more loving. Because we're identifying with that as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. So when we're clear about our identity, it makes it easier to make decisions. It's easier to do the next right thing. And that's what we're called to do as believers. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have the next 10 years all figured out. We just have to do the next right thing. And this is how we see Daniel living his life. Um, He never could have imagined, I don't think. When he was taken captive as just like a young 14-year-old, I don't think he ever could have imagined that he would be in his 80s serving as an advisor to the king of Babylon. That wasn't his goal. I don't think he had like a dream board or one of those vision boards that said like, you know, I want to become a vegetarian. I, you know, I want to um, create civil unrest by not bowing down to foreign gods. Like none of that was on his board. He just did the next right thing. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6 tonight. If you want to open up there, I've got some of it that I'll have on the screen. So Daniel chapter 6. King Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an an extraordinary spirit, or he had exceptional qualities. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So some of the other palace officials are getting jealous of Daniel's success, and they're like, we need to find some dirt on him, you know? Um, But it says that no negligence or corruption was found in him. So these jealous administrators, they hatch a plan. They're going to tell King Darius, hey, you should establish a law that for the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except you will be thrown into the lion's den. And then they were extra tricky because they knew that this kind of law couldn't be changed, even by the king, once it was signed. So verse 9 says, King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So the men, they catch Daniel praying, and they go straight to King Darius, and they tell him that Daniel has ignored the edict and is praying three times a day. So look at verse 14. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. So it says the king is displeased. Is he mad at Daniel? No, he's not mad at Daniel. He's upset and he wants to find a way to rescue Daniel from the consequences of this law. But the law says no edict of the king can be changed. 
Verse 16, so the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you constantly serve, rescue you. Skip down to verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Another sweet children's Bible story. (laughs) So Daniel again draws attention because he is different. So the first thing that's different about Daniel in verse 4 is his character. So if you're taking notes, you can fill that in. The first thing that's different about Daniel is his character. It says they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy so he wasn't just, just smart or just talented, but he was like so squeaky clean that nothing would stick to him. His character was evident to all. Um, we've, as we've been working through this series, there have been several kings at this point. And so um, Darius hadn't been with Daniel for that long, but already knew that he was trustworthy and able to run his kingdom. Um, his character gave him, made him fans, like the king, and enemies, like the other administrators. The importance of character is repeated into the New Testament as well. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among outsiders, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're supposed to live in a way that even if people wanted to ruin my career or ruin my reputation, that my life would speak for itself. We're we're to live in a way that if somebody brings a charge or a criticism against us, then other people will kind of stand up and say, well, wait a second, That that doesn't sound like Gretchen. We know better than that. So the first thing about Daniel is his character. The second thing that's different about Daniel is his consistency. Daniel's consistency, he prayed every day at those times. They knew that he prayed at those times, which is why they could trap him in this way. But he didn't have to stop and think about whether or not he should continue praying because he had already resolved that he was going to obey God. He didn't have to think about um, how to get the law changed or how to lobby somebody in authority to try to fix this. His job wasn't to figure out how to survive the lion's den. He just did the next right thing, the thing that he always did, and then he trusted God with the rest. 
Verse 10 said, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house. Three times he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. There's something freeing about simply being responsible for doing the next right thing. It means that like every moment is new. Every moment we get a choice about doing what's right. We don't have to do what we did before. We don't have to be who we were before. We can look ahead instead of looking behind. So I may have had a monster cookie for breakfast this morning, which perhaps was not the best choice. But later this afternoon, I made a great decision, and I avoided the drive-through, and I went home to eat my healthier option at home. (laughs) Most choices are really small. Do I start my day with God, or do I start my day with my phone? Does my small group or homework take priority? Do I tell the truth, or do I tiptoe around the outside of that? Do I choose what honors God in this moment or what feels good or easy or convenient? But the substance of those little decisions adds up to make our life. That's what our life is made up of, all of those small decisions. They add up to who we are. Character plus consistency equals integrity. Character plus consistency equals integrity. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. So having integrity means that I go to class and I do my homework as if I am doing it for the Lord and not just trying to get by. Integrity means that I treat the person I date the way that God wants them to be treated, and not as an object for me to use for my own gratification. Integrity is spending my money in a way that honors the Lord and not just myself and what I want. Integrity is looking around this room and seeing people the way that God sees them rather than looking for the people who can benefit me most. So Daniel didn't have this character like randomly. I don't, I don't think he was just born with it, like Eagle Scout kind of character. Um, he wasn't just born a goody-goody. This was an intentional decision that Daniel had resolved he was going to be faithful to God, and that required being different and doing different. So how do we live with integrity? How do we live whole lives? Well, like Daniel, it's about what we do, I played violin um, for a long time, for many years, and I took lessons, and I played concerts, and I played in church, but if I want to call myself a violinist, um, I have to actually practice. (laughs) Like, if I don't pick up my violin for five years, um, and I start to play, it's going to sound pretty rough, right, Allison? Yeah. So when people call me a violinist now, I kind of cringe, because I'm not sure that I would call myself that. How many of you played high school sports, junior high sports, any sports? Well, you can probably imagine that I played junior high basketball. Um, Yeah, I did. I got my picture in the yearbook. I probably got like a pin for participation. 
Um, but can I call myself a basketball player? No. <laughs> no. Um, I haven't done anything with basketball in 30 plus years. So that's why we need spiritual practices, okay? Spiritual practices are things that we do to back up what we say about who we are. Spiritual practices are the things that we do to back up what we say about who we are. So spiritual practices are things like Bible reading, prayer, fasting, meditation, um, worship. Like those are just a few. There are all kinds of things that we do to back up or to make us who we say that we are. Our staff recently read a book by Peter Scazzaro called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And in it, Scazzaro compared spiritual practices to a trellis. You guys know what a trellis is? I have a picture. Um, Yeah. A trellis is a structure that supports um, climbing flowers or vines. And at our last house, we had a white trellis like this that um, that would... uh, lean back up against our house, and it supported a climbing rose bush. It was kind of like this rose bush, but not nearly as beautiful as that. Um, the roses were beautiful, but they weren't very strong. So there are a couple different kinds of rose bushes. Like you can have your normal rose bush that might grow in your yard, and it'll probably stand about this tall, and it'll have roses on it. Beautiful. The climbing rose bush gets a lot taller, but its stems are really weak. They can't, like, they can't hold themselves up, and so you need to have something there that it kind of weaves, the vines weave through it to hold it up. Because if you didn't have a trellis, it would still bloom, like you might get some flowers, um, but they would just like lay down on the ground on top of each other, and they wouldn't get the sunlight and the space that they would need um, to thrive. So spiritual practices are the things that we do that hold up and support what we have resolved and who we have resolved to be. Does that make sense? Daniel prayed every day, three times a day, it says. It was a spiritual practice that had helped him keep his resolve. I think he did it when he was in trouble. I think he did it when things were going smoothly. We don't know exactly what he prayed. We don't know how much of the time was spent, like, asking God things and how much of the time was spent just listening to God. But I don't think it's a stretch to think that without the spiritual practice of praying every day, I don't think that Daniel's faith would have survived for 70 years, living in captivity as one of just a few people who were following God. I don't know how he could have done it. I don't know how he could have sustained if he didn't have some spiritual practices that were holding him up and supporting him. His practice of prayer was this daily reminder. I belong to God, and this is what God's people do. Just like we said about the runner. I belong to God, and this is what God's people do, and so this is, this is what I'm going to do. It resulted in him knowing exactly what to do when Darius signed that new law. There was no uncertainty when the time came. The next right thing for him to do was to get on his knees and continue to seek the Lord just as he had practiced hundreds of times before. So how does your integrity look? 
What practices have you put in place that build your consistency and your character? I was thinking this week about, like, how to say this gently. You know, sometimes as a speaker, you don't want to just come out and tell people what they should do. You want them to come to that conclusion on their own, and so we sometimes kind of tiptoe around things and drop little hints, and I just don't know that I can make this any more palatable (laughs) or gentle for you. Um, If we want to live with integrity, we can't just believe something, but we have to actually do something about what we believe. We come here every Monday night to worship and encounter God, and we fill up on knowledge about the Bible and who God is, but unless we actually practice our faith with consistency, we're not going to be different We're not going to be different from the world around us, and we're not going to be different from the people that we were before. James um, 2.26 says this, that faith apart from works is dead, or faith apart from works is useless. If we're following Jesus, we're going to make changes in our lives to do the kinds of things that he did. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to be like him, to do the things that he did. We don't just take those as like polite suggestions or think about that spiritual practices are only for the super spiritual or only for like David and Lindsay and I or just the leaders. And, that it's for everybody who calls themselves a Christian. That for all of us, we are supposed to do the things that Jesus did. We need spiritual practices like Daniel's. Daniel prayed three times a day. Most likely, he started his day with prayer, and he ended his day with prayer, seeking God. And the number of times that he prayed isn't, like, magical. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have to do that exactly the same as Daniel. The important thing is that Daniel turned his face or his attention towards the Lord. That he made that a regular practice of looking away from the craziness that was around him and the things that he was thinking and the things that other people were putting on him, and he turned his face towards the Lord. He stopped what he was doing for however long it took him, and he sought the Lord. Everybody in this room has a start to their day. So for some of us, it's like 5.30 in the morning, and for others, it's 2 p.m., okay? But we all start the day somewhere, right? We've talked about this before on Monday nights, but if this idea is new to you, of, of a spiritual practice of just spending some time seeking God, of paying attention to God, I want to encourage you to do the first 15 challenge that we've talked about before. And that is the first 15 minutes of your day, regardless of what time it is, give that time to God. Maybe you open up a Bible and you read one psalm. And you read it and you kind of meditate on it, you think about what those words mean. Maybe you spend some time asking God about some things that are important to you, and then spending a little bit of time just sitting and listening to see if he might say something. I want to encourage our community that this, it's not unreasonable that this would be what we do, that what all of us do as a community, that we regularly, consistently 
Turn our faces to God. Make that a priority and seek him about what we need to do, about what is important to him, about our fears, about our frustrations, about all of those things. And there are going to be some days where it will be great, and you'll be like, oh, you'll never believe what I read. It was exactly what I need to hear today. And there are going to be other days that you forget, and there are going to be some days um, that you go, is this really doing anything? And I promise you that it is. Because the things that we do, do something to us. That's why, we, that's why we practice these things, because the things that we do, do something to us. Just keep doing the next right thing. And here's what God promises us, that we don't have to live a life of overwhelmed, stressed out indecision. He offers us a better way. In Psalm 34, 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to him. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and incomprehensible things you do not know. It's like that Rumsfeld quote, like he's going to tell you the unknown unknowns if you seek him. That's the kind of different life that God is offering us. One of confidence and peace and wholeness where we don't look like the rest of the world, overwhelmed by uncertainty, worried about failure or about the future. But we have confidence knowing that we have a God who has the answers. And when we do the next right thing, he'll take care of the rest.